we have several questions that have come in and so here we go well a pop-up question and answer series one lady wrote in about worship and, and about the activities we do on a Sunday uh, are those activities truly for the Lord or are they for us um, been pondering this at length listened to a podcast and one of the present presenters ask is God so insecure or egotistical that we think he needs all the flattery and accolades and flowery prayers we engage in on Sunday morning so the questioner is asking is that really what God wants or is that just what we think he wants is let's just go from there there's a little bit more here if we only go by scripture and by early Christian history what our worship was was a time to gather together as a group and share what the Holy Spirit was doing in our lives. Look at Acts 15. That's the question that the elders in Jerusalem wanted to know from the people that were coming to them. What is the Spirit doing where you are? It also was a place to share stories about Jesus, stories about Jesus working in you, which I'm not going to try to divide those from the Spirit working in you since they're, they're all the one, uh, three in one, and you get it. There were also um, songs that they sang. Uh, they were, most early Christian hymns were psalms, the, the psalms that you get in the Old Testament. But a lot more were being written. You know, we have um, Moses' sister writing a song. You know, so we know songwriters were always around. And then there were prayers. So prayers, some songs, there was some sharing about the Holy Spirit and Jesus stories. And then there was this really big thing called share your food. Most Christian worship that we have a record of in the first couple of centuries involved eating. And so you gathered together for a communal meal and you shared your food and you shared your drink and you shared your Jesus and you shared your stories. And you sometimes shared a song. And Paul talks about that in Corinthians when he says, when one of you has a song, uh, then others about how to pray. That was worship. It would take another 100 plus years. Um, I, I say 100 plus is I was starting it from the year 200. So in the 300s, uh, Constantine and his regulation of the church and the church's um, joyous abandon of simplicity and grabbing on to bureaucracy uh, led to many issues. And one of them was that this communal meal where we remember Jesus and we share our food and it all became the Eucharist, which is a reenactment of the mass, the, um, the crucifixion of Christ. Every time it's done, a whole, the altar now has uh, blood there and we're to concentrate on pain when it used to be a family table and we concentrated on what the Holy Spirit was doing among us. So that's that's what jesus left behind and that's what the apostles by and large left behind so i will confess that i am uncomfortable with a lot of songs that i call jesus is my girlfriend you know, rather i'm sorry girl with a guitar jesus is my boyfriend songs or the so-called 7-eleven songs where you have seven words and you say it 11 times and people have used that 7-eleven hymn for a long time and now one of the most popular hymns in many churches has seven words that they repeated 11 times you can't make this stuff up does that mean they're sinful no and I want to be really plain here songs that are all emotion 
all driven to, to get you to tears or exultation or the like. I'm not saying those are sinful, not in any way. And neither am I saying that uh, our, our songs that keep saying, God, you're good, you're great, you're wonderful, I love you so much, my, my heart's overflowing with love, did I mention I love you? Those songs have a place, and in some people's lives, that place is major because they are wired that way. Most of those songs leave me cold. My coming to God has had many emotional moments, and I expect there to be many emotion, more emotional moments to come. Yet my coming to God is a matter of faith and thought and decision. And so I like the theology of the old ancient hymns that he have some really solid stuff in there. We sing a lot better theology than we live. And, and true, there's some train wrecks of theology in the old stuff too. But in the new stuff, I wonder who's going to be singing this in 300 years. Maybe they will be. Uh, I've already been, been proven to be a lousy prophet. So take all of this with 15 grains of salt. I would ask that we understand that to the outsider, this looks like we are saying God's a huge narcissist, that we must keep him uh, sated and satisfied by continually pouring out uh, that we think he's good. But does that mean we shouldn't sing any of these? Of course not. Because the fact is that these songs are speaking truth. God is good and we have experienced him as good and we do love him and we know he loves us. It's that crossing the border into hyper-emotionalism or romantic sounding. I mean, if you can replace the name of God in a song or Jesus in a song with Bob or Sally and the song still works, that's an issue. So yeah, I can understand what you're saying. At Our Safe Harbor, we try very much to strip worship down to a very simple thing uh, it's a if you watch us for an hour on Sunday, we're hoping that's not the only worship you do, but we hope the other worship you do involves sharing, caring, and being kind. But what if, what if God doesn't seem to be kind? Oh boy, I got several questions about Luke 12. I think we got several families out there in different parts of the country reading Luke 12, and all of them came alight about the same time. So. Luke 12 is a difficult chapter, period. And he talks about, I don't think I've come to spread peace. I've come to bring fire. I come to bring a set of father against a son and the mother against a daughter. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound good. And I'm not going to explain this away either. You see, that's the thing. This is, um, Jesus is, uh, is talking to them about reality. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. That's what Newton found out, and we know that to be true. We know that if we do bad things, there are consequences. If I murder someone uh, and I get caught, and there are consequences. And there are consequences for that family because they've lost a, a beloved family member. And these consequences do not go away. They ripple throughout time. We all understand that. But do you understand that doing good, bringing good into a situation also has consequences and some of them are negative. In fact, you can come and tell people that God loves them, and so, which is all true. 
and live a perfect life in front of them and still get beaten up and nailed to a tree for your efforts and still have brothers who don't believe you and still have families that split over you. Jesus is saying, here's the reality. If you do good, sometimes it'll come back and hurt. And it's, it's very true. Think about being a teenager and you're, you're at a party in a house and the alcohol comes out and you're all too young. You're not allowed legally to be touching the stuff. And as they're sneaking it and giggling and having a good old time and it starts moving to you. And you say, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait till of legal age. Going to talk to my parents. We're going to make decisions about whether this is going to be part of my life or not. That's a really good thing. That's a super good, super wise thing to say. Do you suspect that that might have some negative consequences? Oh boy. You might lose some friends, lose invitation to parties. You might be uh, harassed in the hallways at school. You might get hate text. You might get posts about you on social media that are obscene and harmful and hurtful because you did good. Well, let's move the scenario now to a family. It's, it's your family, but they're, they're a difficult family. And at Thanksgiving and Christmas, they yell and argue and drink and get drunk and you don't. You go there because they're family. And I'll leave the advisability of that to every individual. But you go there because they're family, but you don't, you don't participate. And, and that becomes you're not participating shows it's not mandatory that people can make a decision not to act this way. And oh my goodness, that is not welcomed and therefore there will be negative fallout. There's another part of this that we often miss. Jesus, I, I don't know where you're ever gonna find this before this passage, is saying that you can come to faith independent of the faith of your family or your community. Throughout most of history, even to the present time, certainly up through the 1800s, when a king or a chieftain changed religions, so did everybody in his area, his, his clan, his tribe, his nation, his province, his feudal area. If, if, if this guy's a Waldensian, you're a Waldensian. If this guy's a Lollard, you're a Lollard. If this guy's a Catholic, you're a Catholic. Now we've all converted to Protestantism. It's because whatever the leader did, that's what you did. And certainly and absolutely at the family level, if the father converted, everybody converted. Uh, it's just, in fact, um, Lydia, whenever Lydia was baptized, the scripture says she was baptized and her whole household, Cornelius and his whole household. And some people then uh, make huge assumptions there and assume that means infants. I don't buy that part. But it was so ingrained that dad chooses a religion or the political leader, territorial leader, picks our religion and Jesus is bringing something where a son might believe something now that infuriates the father. That the mother may not speak to the daughter because now the daughter believes in Christ and that's just not acceptable to the mother. He is warning them of the reality of making good choices and doing good it sometimes has very negative consequences.
but he was also revealing that this is an individual religion in that it is up to the individual to have faith and to respond. Again, why I don't go in for infant baptism. The individual has to have faith and then respond. Now, once you have responded to God in a positive way, you're no longer an individual. You're part of the community of faith and you are expected to participate in that in a huge variety of ways. And I'm not going to try to nail those down because I can't. We don't have that kind of time. So in a, um, he doesn't save you to be on your own. But by believing, you might find you've lost your community and you've lost your family. By standing up for Jesus, you might lose your friends. You also might get them. I, I was in a meeting years ago with a bunch of Muslims and it was a very tense meeting, frankly, until some, one of them said something that I decided I just got to go with this. And I said, no, that's not true. And they all looked at me and I said, can I tell you a Jesus story? And they all nodded. Um, the Quran loves Jesus and, and Muslims love Jesus. They just don't know him. And so I started telling Jesus stories. It amazed me how these people all suddenly became my friend. And many of them are dear friends to this day. But I've also told those stories and been disowned, been kicked out, been fired. Doing good. Sometimes this happens. I've got one more time, one more. I've got time for one more. I'm a little tired, can you tell? And I'm headed to Texas in two days to do some intensive work there. So I'm sure it'll be quality product. Uh, again, people reading in this passage, and they went to uh, Luke 13 and verse 8, where Jesus says, well, I'm going to, you know, if this doesn't produce any fruit, this, this tree, then I'm going to fertilize it, dig around it, take care of it. But if it still doesn't, I'm cutting it down. It's fit only to be burnt. And, and that offends modern culture that says everybody must be accepted, celebrated, everybody's equal. We are all equal in the eyes of God of equal value. But once you think about this, he uses a tree for a good reason. You couldn't go to the store for food. People had to grow food. And so you've got these trees and they're growing figs and you've got these other plants over here that are growing other things. But you, you cannot afford to use the community's resources to continually put it into a tree that isn't producing food in return. People will be going hungry because you are investing in something that will not give you a return. There are some dating relationships that have that are like this, where if you are investing in this other individual and they are not returning that, you need to stop. You need to, you've given it your best. You're not saying this is a horrible, evil person and that they should die. You're just saying, I can't continue to put limited resources, my time, my fortune, my love, my emotions into someone who refuses to bear fruit, that we are in a relationship that's a give and take relationship. I'm not giving you carte blanche here to divorce. We're talking here mainly about that pre-marriage thing where you are dating. And by the way, if somebody doesn't want you to invest in them, stop. Don't text them 300 times a day. Don't be a stalker. 
if you force somebody to invest in you, that never goes well. There are huge negative consequences. There are also negative consequences if you continue to invest in churches that are really run by a power center of two, three, five, six families, and the church exists only really to please them and to maintain the building. You're not getting fruit out of this. Where are your dollars going? Where's your mind and your emotions and your spirit going? This is why Cami and I support Compassion International I have for years. You can tell where every dollar goes and you can see fruit, measurable fruit, and checking how well did they do five years later, 10 years later. These kids are miles ahead of others and you can tell it's an efficient operation. We do the same with One Generation Away and GraceWorks, and I'm sure you have some local ministries that you can tell. You put a dollar into there, there is a real impact. But there are many churches where you can give $100,000 and see no fruit. Jesus is saying, then stop. It's not helping. Jesus will not drag anybody kicking and screaming into the gates of heaven. They don't want to go. They don't have to. He won't make them. He invested in us. He's given us time and blessing, making the sun to shine upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And yet, after he's died for you and resurrected for you and interceding for you, putting all that effort in, if you don't want to be there, he will accept your decision. And that's offensive to some, but it makes a world of sense to me. We've got some more, but these have to be kept shorter uh, for these pop-up question and answer things. If I have time and, and you send in enough questions where I can justify taking a break in the day, I'll do this again very, very shortly. You can send questions to patrick at rsafeharbor.com. Hope that you tune in to our either our website, um, our Facebook page, Vimeo, YouTube. We're on all of the platforms. We hope that you tune in and you watch our Monday morning messages, our Sunday worship, which is just so much fun and, uh, and meaningful and not the same words repeated all the time. And also, I hope that you, you follow us through our, our walking through scripture on Wednesdays. You are a delight. Thank you so much for everything you do. May God bless you. We'll see you soon.